We're going to continue on in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you can open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel, and if you are in need of a Bible this morning, our Frontlines team has a couple. So you can throw up your hand and they will bring it to you. And if that is something that you would like to keep because you do not have one, you may feel free to keep the one that you borrow this morning as your own. So once again, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll start right at the beginning, verse 1. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him, David, from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, For he went out and came in before them. If you'll jump with me to chapter 19, starting in verse 18. Now David fled and escaped from Saul. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him what Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went to live at Nioth. And it was told to Saul, behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah. And came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, 
where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And he went there to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothing, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sonia. Good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Michael, and uh, today I get to continue us along in our series about the life of David. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19, we have before us a story about Saul's jealousy of David. I think you'll notice pretty quickly that uh, much of my focus, much of what I emphasize and point out in these two chapters will be about Saul. And I want to assure you that that is on purpose. It's not as though I've very unfortunately confused Saul and David. Um, but I'm going to do that because there's a writing technique being employed here in which, in the midst of, of a series of chapters about David written more from a, a first-person perspective, about uh, the things that David is doing, the things that he's thinking about, uh, his motives for the decisions that he's making, the writer of 1 Samuel is now directing our attention to the people around David. And we're meant to, to learn about David, to understand him, through the perspective of, of those people. And so um, my hope is that, that as we examine Saul's jealousy of David and the way that is uh, contrasted by the love that Jonathan has for David, the love that all of Israel has for David, um, we'll come to see from a new perspective um, David's life living faithfully after God. And my hope as well is that we'll come to see our need for, for a true and better king in a new light. Um, so as it relates to the topic of jealousy, I feel uh, particularly well qualified in that I'm the youngest of four kids, and um, if you are a youngest child or you've lended an ear to somebody as they bemoaned uh, their position as the youngest child, uh, you'll know that you spend much of your childhood as the youngest um, kind of discontent with your place in your family. Um, and, uh, you know, you watch your older siblings go through all of life's milestones before you do. You watch um, them get to use the TV remote to, to pick what you're watching on TV every night. Uh, they get first dibs on the car every weekend. Um, so no hard feelings, you know. Um, but that, that jealousy, I think, is also still very much alive in me today. Um, even uh, as I've spent time with my family over the last couple weeks on family vacation, um, there's still that jealous competitiveness between me and my siblings, especially my brothers. Um, as we do any kind of activity, it very quickly turns into one in which the score is kept. There's a very clear winner and loser. Um, <laughs> and that, that jealousy spills out in, into my other relationships. I think there's kind of this inherent competitiveness um, in good places and in bad places that, that is still alive and well in me. Um, so, yeah, I feel like the, the School of Hard Knocks has well prepared me to, to preach through a couple of chapters in which jealousy is very clearly the theme. Um, but on the flip side of that, I also feel a bit apprehensive. I think um, first because jealousy is something that we treat as a kind of juvenile topic. It's something that we uh, warn kids about very seriously. Um, I can remember maybe the last serious warning that I got about jealousy was from a, a Berenstein Bears book called uh, The Green-Eyed Monster. Um, 
So we take it seriously as kids, but then we, we kind of cease to consider it as we get older. Um, it's, it's not something that we really carefully examine ourselves for. We, we don't look in our relationships to see how it might be affecting us. Um, and so in some sense, I feel like I'm kind of starting from scratch, getting a room full of adults to consider the danger and the harm of jealousy and why we need to take it seriously. Um, and, and along with that, I think jealousy is also a tricky topic to tackle because God describes himself as a jealous God. And so as much as I want to get us to, to take seriously and feel the weight of jealousy in our own lives, part of our work will also be to very carefully separate what makes our jealousy a quality of, of our brokenness, of our sin, but how jealousy can, can also be a quality of a, of a good and perfect and trustworthy God. And so to, to address these things that I'm apprehensive about, um, also to play to my strengths a little bit, um, I'm going to divide up this uh, fairly lengthy text into a few parts. We'll examine uh, Saul's jealousy together in three parts. Uh, we'll first look at the cause of Saul's jealousy, which will come out of uh, chapter 18, um, from verse 1 to 16. Then we'll look together at the deadly symptom of Saul's jealousy, which will come out of most of chapter 19 up to verse 17. And then we'll look together at the solution for Saul's jealousy, which will come out of uh, 19, verse 18 to 24. Or if you prefer to think of these as questions, where does jealousy come from? Why is it such a serious problem, and how do we get rid of it? Does that sound okay? Yes, good, because I don't think I have the chops to change things up on the floor. So, so as I said, let's uh, first turn our attention to the cause of Saul's jealousy. And um, to do that, uh, just leave a bookmark briefly in chapter 18. Uh, and turn back with me to where we started our series in 1 Samuel 16. Um, and we'll just look at some of the, the preceding chapters to get a bit of a, a picture of David's uh, relationship with Saul so far. Um, so you might remember in, in 1 Samuel 16, God sent Samuel, who was the prophet in Israel at that time, on a mission to find a new king to replace Saul. Uh, this time, very importantly, it would be a king not that Israel would choose for themselves, but a king that God had chosen, a, a man that God would describe as a king after my own heart, somebody I've chosen for myself. Um, and so this mission led Samuel across the countryside of Israel alongside all these major cities into this little village in Bethlehem. And there he met uh, the family of Jesse. And from all the older brothers of, of, of Jesse's family, all the brothers in Jesse's family, uh, he chose David. God identified David as the one that Samuel should anoint. Um, and you might remember from there, or you can read it now in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13 to 14, uh, that as Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And then correspondingly in verse 14, as the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And so at that point in the story, Saul knew that he had been rejected by God as the king of Israel. God had said to him, you've been, you've been disobedient to me, you've rejected me, and so I have rejected you as the king of Israel. I'm going to take away your kingdom from you and give it to somebody else. And we got a bit of a, of a spoiler there that David is going to be the one empowered by God that's going to take the place of Saul. So Saul didn't know that that was happening in a, in a remote corner of Israel, but we got a sneak peek that, that David was going to be the one uh, to replace him. And then 
in 1 Samuel 17, which we read last week, um, whether or not you were here, and maybe even if you um, have never been in a church before, you'd likely know the story of David and Goliath. Um, David goes out to an ongoing war between the Philistines and Israel um, and kills a, this massive Philistine warrior named Goliath. And that, that starts in Israel, this, this widespread realization that David is not just another shepherd, he's not just another soldier, but that God is doing something very profound in and through him in Israel. And, and simultaneously, as that widespread realization is starting, we saw at the end of chapter 17 that there's this suspicion and kind of break in confidence in Saul about who David is. He, he questions um, a few times, you know, who, where did this guy come from? Whose son is this? Um, that he starts to have a certain kind of uncertainty about David. And so that brings us now into 1 Samuel chapter 18. And the first thing I'll point out there is in uh, verse 4. We see that Jonathan, Saul's son, is so captivated by David. He's so excited about what God is doing through David. That's become clear by his, his victory over Goliath. That he loves David as his own soul. He makes a covenant with David. And in verse 4, very significantly, he takes off the robe that was on him and gives it to David. He takes his armor, his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And what he is symbolically doing there is saying, David, something very significant is happening in you. And even though I am the one who is the rightful heir to the throne as the son of Saul, you are going to take my place. He's taking off his, his royal robe, his royal armor, his royal sword, and saying, David, this belongs to you. You're the one who should have this instead of me. That's very significant because that is exactly the opposite of what Saul is going to do. And the way that Jonathan surrenders and submits himself to David and says, like, I, I've recognized that something is happening through you and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to make a covenant with you and su- submit myself to you. Saul is going to, to cling to every bit of power that he has and every bit of time that he has left as the king of Israel. And that is what's going to carry along the next 10 chapters in the, in, in the book of 1 Samuel is going to be Saul's escapades in trying to take David's life and David having to, to flee and escape and elude Saul in all the ways that he's trying to take his life. And so, as we, as we look at these chapters, as we look at those chapters in the, in the coming weeks, um, to, to recognize jealousy and to uh, be, be able to distinguish what role it plays in the relationship between Saul and David, I want to put forward this really helpful definition of what jealousy is and where it comes from, which I've borrowed from uh, the work of a, a pastor and a theologian named Jonathan Edwards. He says that jealousy is an involuntary fear and opposition towards someone whose power or potential threatens something that we treasure. An involuntary fear and opposition towards someone whose power or potential threatens something that we treasure. He wrote that in the 17th century, so to put it more plainly for us today, jealousy is what causes us to instinctively dislike people because we see them as a threat to something that we have or something that we want. helpful maybe to note the very subtle difference between jealousy and envy, which I think we often refer to synonymously, and they very often go hand in hand. 
but envy is, is hostile and bitter at somebody because they have something that you don't have, whereas jealousy is hostile and bitter towards somebody because they are a threat towards something that you have. Jealousy is much more um, aroused by a fear of loss, a fear of losing something. So you can take that abstract definition if you find definitions helpful uh, and map that onto what we see in verse 8. Saul was very angry. He is terrified at this, this contrast that is growing and becoming more clear between him and David. David is in one corner. He's receiving the, the love and celebration of Israel and Jonathan. He's rising through the ranks. He's having these increasing military successes. He's a man who's close to God's heart, who's obedient to God. And he's contrasted them with Saul, who's been disobedient to God. He's been rejected by God. And so Saul is afraid, in verse 8, that David is going to take away his kingdom from him. He's going to lose his treasured place as Israel's hero, as Israel's leader. It's the person that people look to, to lead them into battle and to win their victories for them. So there's his fear and insecurity as a cause of his jealousy, but I think far more significantly, note the underlying cause of Saul's jealousy at work here, which is distrust of God. His distrust of God runs even underneath his fear and insecurity. Look at verse 12, that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. This dynamic of him becoming more fearful and hostile towards David as he comes to understand that God is with David, God has chosen David, God is choosing to put David on the throne instead of him, um, is supposed to get our attention. It's, it's there in verse 12. It's repeated again in verse 14, that the Lord was with David. When Saul saw that, he had great success. He stood, again, in fearful awe of him. And then you can look in verse 28, which we didn't read, but it says again that when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. So what this text and what uh, chapter 18 emphasizes for us is that jealousy is fundamentally a distrust of God. And so in, in preparation for this morning to consider that practically in my own life, consider the way that Saul's jealousy is evident in my own life, um, I did a, a fair amount of, of reflecting on where it is evident, what relationships and situations it's, it's most profound in. I think one that I've wrestled with most and have had to come to terms with most is um, the, the anger and bitterness that is in me towards some of my closest friends. Um, it's a, a group of people that I, I went to school with, um, that I lived with throughout university, who are now um, buying houses, they're getting married, they're having kids. Um, and for the most part, I think I, I celebrate with them. I am excited that they're doing that. Um, I think it's, you know, those are things that are incredibly worthy of, of attention and celebration. Um, but I am thinking particularly of a, of a couple of, of drives home um, from visiting them in Dundas and in Hamilton and driving back up Highway 6 and there being this kind of unexplainable bitterness in me towards them. Um, Certainly my, my insecurity and fear, I think, is at play that somehow their growth and maturity threatens this image I have of myself 
as someone who's maturing and growing and making his own life in a city apart from my family. Uh, but certainly my, my distrust of God is evident as well in the, in the questions that run through your mind in a time of bitterness like that. You know, what, what has God overlooked that he's decided to work that out in their life and not mine? What have they done that I have not done? What is, what is wrong with God that he has missed me in the midst of working those things out in their life? So I hope that's sparking some of the ways that jealousy has seeped into your life as well. Maybe it's towards someone who started a business similar to yours and the way that threatens your financial security or your sense of success and accomplishment. Maybe it's seeing the growth and maturity of someone else's kids the way that maybe threatens your sense of competency as a parent, seeing the way that, that they are growing and developing and, and going through life's milestones ahead of your own. Maybe it's towards someone who got a job very easily in a field that you've been waiting and working to get a job in for a very long time. Maybe somebody who works in a field that you do now, who you kind of endlessly compare yourself to, you're endlessly resentful towards for their success. And so this morning and, and in the coming weeks, as you find and examine these places, you'll see that it explains the very subtle insecurity and fear that marks our relationships with each other. It distorts the way that we approach each other and relate to each other. Thomas Aquinas said that jealousy rejoices at another's sorrow and sorrows at, another, at another's joy. So jealousy kind of twists and and flips on its head the way that we're supposed to relate to each other. And I think you'll find also that this jealousy is, is present everywhere and most profound everywhere we are unwilling to trust God. Jealousy is in every place that we are unwilling to enjoy God, unwilling to enjoy the way that he decides and chooses to distribute his, his resources, his gifts and blessings to the people around us the way that he chooses to work out his will in the people around us, and sometimes not through us in the way that we want to. So that brings us to the second part of the story, because that has very dangerous consequences in our relationships. And I think in chapter 19, we see that the symptoms of this jealousy are nothing less than deadly. We saw in chapter 18 some of the Beginnings of Saul's jealousy that Saul was endlessly consumed with David. He was angry with David. He was afraid of David. He was losing sleep. But what chapter 19 teaches us is that if jealousy is allowed to run its course, if we don't pay attention to it, if we don't diagnose it and remove it, then it will result in us taking life from people around us. If it's left untreated, it's fulfilled by taking life from the ones we are jealous of. In Saul's case, he tried to take the the life of his own son-in-law three times in the span of 12 verses in chapter 19. Once in verse 1, he speaks to his son and all his servants that they should kill David. He gives an order that David should be killed on sight. In verse 10, Saul again tries to pin David to a wall with a spear, tries to throw a spear through the body of David. And in verse 11, Saul again sends his soldiers to David's house to watch him, that they might kill him or take him back to Saul's palace to kill him. So three times we're being 
pointed to this reality that jealousy takes life. I've got to give credit to a, a writer named Oz Guinness who pointed out this deadly potential of jealousy this way. I think articulates it very well. He says, Jealousy enters into us when we see someone else's happiness or success and we feel ourselves called into question. Call that insecurity and fear that we talked about. He says, Then out of the hurt of our wounded self-esteem, our jealousy seeks to bring the other person down to our level by word or deed. If we've been belittled by their success they must be brought down as well. He's saying there's something inherently retaliatory about our jealousy. It's released in, in violence and opposition, retaliation. He goes on to cite James 3.16, that where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder and every evil practice. And James chapter 1, that jealousy, like all other sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. It results in death. Maybe you're thinking, as I was when I first read this stuff, that seems a little bit extreme. I've never thought to throw a spear at somebody or thought to send my servants to harm somebody that I'm jealous of, although I may have wanted to. Um, but I think even, even in the example that I shared, as I've come to understand what, what Os Guinness is getting at, what uh, the book of James is getting at, is that even towards my friends, I, I took life from them in the sense that I devalued them. I tried to take away from what those accomplishments were worth. What them having kids and families should have been a place of, of, of unbridled celebration becomes a, a place where I try to minimize and, and distort that in their life. And I think there's, there's even a broken part of us that very quietly comes alive in our jealousy that might have even accepted those things, might have, might have allowed the addition of those things to our life, even if it meant that they would lose those things. You know, Matt has said before that when we, when we treat people this way, when we approach people this way, we functionally remove the image of God from them. We ignore what makes them valuable and important, consider the way that this happens culturally as well. Think about our, our satisfaction in hearing about the secret weaknesses of successful people on the news. How much of our attention, how much of our news cycle that takes up. Somehow it's okay to highlight and enjoy and get some kind of twisted contentment out of seeing somebody's marriage fall apart. Without considering the cost that that's having to them and their kids. Somehow we, we rejoice and enjoy we're okay with people putting that on the front page of tabloids. This is all why I think Jesus in Matthew 5 teaches us that the bitterness, the anger, the, the slander, the hidden desires to, to harm each other that all come out of jealousy is just like murder. It's no less harmful to the fabric of a community than if we were to physically harm each other. Our hearts are no less corrupted than somebody that we would readily give a life sentence to for committing murder. So jealousy is a serious problem because it takes life from the people that we're supposed to love. But it's also a serious problem because it takes our own life in the process. Think back to the first story in Scripture about jealousy in Genesis chapter 3. The sin that has infected all of humanity 
that distorts relationships all leads back to jealousy. Our jealousy of God and his authority and power over us. As we came to understand the contrast between us and him, the authority and power that he has that we don't, we decided that we were unwilling to trust him. We were unwilling to submit to him. We became fearful and hostile towards him as we came to understand this contrast between who he is and who we are. Scripture is so clear that if we go on opposing him, if we don't repent of the way that we oppose him and treat each other, then we are separating ourselves from the life and goodness of God, both in this life and in all of eternity. There is no more of a dangerous place to be than in opposition to God, in living apart from him. There's no more of a deadly place to be than in living in opposition to God and apart from God. That's where I'll direct you back to the last verses of chapter 19, which is a bit of a strange ending to this part of the story between Saul and David, which I believe shows us that the solution to Saul's jealousy and the solution to our jealousy begins with nothing less than God's merciful intervention. There's much that could be said of what's happening here, but I think that what we need to see is that God, by his Spirit, strips away Saul's hostile jealousy. That these three groups of messengers each were overcome by the Spirit and they prophesied literally means that they were stopped in their tracks in trying to take the life of David and instead began to pray and loudly praise God. And same with Saul, as he is stopped dead in his tracks by the Spirit, instead of trying to take the life of David, he begins to pray and loudly praise God. I think what's, what's happening is that Saul's jealous blindness is cleared for a moment. He gets a glimpse of who David is, what God is doing in David, what God is accomplishing through David for Israel, and maybe even empowered by the Spirit, seeing the way that God is going to work through the family line of David for all the nations of the earth. Whatever he saw, he falls down before God. He surrenders himself to David. Look in verse 24, where Saul strips off his clothes, mirroring Jonathan's submission to David, and at least temporarily surrendering and forfeiting his right to the throne. And I think what Saul and the people witnessing these events were supposed to take away from all this was that it was foolish for Saul to oppose David. Because in opposing David, he was opposing God himself. Regardless about how Saul felt about David, but how Saul felt about God's decision to put David on the throne, God had unlimited power and authority. He had chosen David. He was with David. God was showing everyone in Israel that David was the true king that God had anointed to replace Saul. And for Saul to oppose him was to drive into the oncoming traffic of God's purpose and will. So we don't live in the time of David. But I think there is a very similar choice, a very similar warning and caution before each of us. The story of Saul and David points forward to Jesus someone who had come from the family line of David and parallels the way that we jealously opposed Jesus as he proclaimed that he was the king of a kingdom. 
In John chapter 11, just like Saul's fear in chapter, chapter 18, verse 8, that he's, he's afraid that he's going to lose his kingdom, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and the chief priests and Pharisees get together and say, what are we going to do with this guy? If he goes on like this, we're going to lose our place and our people and our temple. Just like Saul and their jealousy of Jesus, they are afraid that Jesus is a threat to their position of power, control, and influence. Chapter 11 closes in verse 53 by saying, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Same story in Matthew 21, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Looks a lot like David's triumphal entry into Israel. People singing and celebrating, saying about Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. And that chapter also ends with the indignance and disgust that the religious leaders had for Jesus and their plans to arrest him and torture him and crucify him. Friends, we can either jealously oppose Jesus and his kingdom or we can joyfully surrender to him. In Jesus, we come up to someone who is in every respect more powerful more good and more glorious than we are. Through him all things were created, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1. He sustains everything in the universe by a word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1. He has the authority to give and take life as he sees fit from the seven billion people that are on this earth with us, John chapter 5. The default of our jealous hearts is to oppose this reality, to deny this reality and ignore this reality, to distort and minimize what he said and who he is. So all of us who are in some area of our lives indifferent to him, all of us who in some area of our lives insist on coming to him on our own terms and setting the boundaries and limits with which he is allowed to work in us and through us, Think of my friends who I love here in Guelph who question that a Jesus of Nazareth ever even existed and certainly question and reject the fact that he has the authority and the right to instruct us how we are to live. We are all together afraid of him. We're afraid of what it's going to cost us if we surrender to him. What we're going to lose if he is truly the king instead of us. And if all of history is coming to a day where his kingdom will cover the whole earth, if it's true that we are lined up contrary to God's kingdom in our very instinct, in our very nature, then we need to repent. We need to adjust. Following after God means that we need to find ways that our lives are out of alignment with Jesus and reconcile that, fit back underneath him as our king, because he is the true king and we're not. John the Baptist said very simply, looking at Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. I think as we see the gospel in the book of Samuel and in scripture, we see the reason we have to joyfully surrender ourselves to Jesus. Also why we can accept that jealousy is a quality of a good and perfect and trustworthy God while being a quality of our sin and brokenness. It's God's jealousy at work in 1 Samuel chapter 12, where as God's people are rejecting him, as they're forgetting their purpose as God's covenant people, as the ones who are going to 
be set apart from the nations, display his glory to the nations. God says to them, even though you are rejecting me for my name's sake, I'm going to make you into a people for myself. It's God's jealousy at work as he, in, in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, as God protects David, as he humbles and disarms Saul to ensure that Israel has the leader that it needs to flourish and grow. That happens all throughout the Old Testament. Israel, Israel is jealously opposed to God, and God is, is faithful to them so that his character and his holiness and his glory is clearly displayed. And then in the New Testament, we meet Jesus, who's God himself come down to dwell among his people and ransom them from their sin. You follow past places like John 11 and Matthew 21 in the Gospel accounts, you'll find Jesus did not continue to elude the people who were trying to harm him like David did. But you'll find him on a cross, and he is now stripped and naked. He is consumed by our jealousy and bitterness, but somehow in the exact same place, his perfect jealousy for us is fulfilled, running in the exact opposite direction, where our jealousy is fulfilled by taking his life, his jealousy is fulfilled by giving up his own life to protect us and perfect us. It's there that he's purchasing for each of us a place in his kingdom that no one will ever be able to take away from us. It's there that he's assigning a worth and value to your life that no circumstance or no opinion of the people around you will ever be able to degrade or decrease. As we submit and surrender ourselves to that work in us, Christ himself takes up residence in us. He makes us into people who rejoice and delight in the way that God works out his good and pleasing and perfect will in each of us and in the people around us. He makes us into people who, who point, instead of to ourselves, endlessly trying to attract people to ourselves, he makes us into people who point to God, who glorify God in the way that we are designed to. And he makes us into people who are able to love and celebrate each other and live in harmony with each other to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice. So with that, I'll, I'll close and pray, and uh, we'll remain up here if it would be helpful for you to have um, someone to, to talk and pray with. I'll be here along with a few others. But as we, as we sing these next couple of songs, I'd invite you to consider this choice that each of us has, to jealously oppose Jesus and his kingdom or joyfully surrender to him. Ask him to to point out to you those parts in your life that reveal a distrust of him, where you remain indifferent to him. Ask him to fill you with a sense of, of affection and urgency towards those in your life who remain in opposition to God, to call them into joyful surrender to him. And ask, us, ask him to remind you again of the reality that he gave himself up for us to make us into a people who are holy and without blemish in the eyes of our Heavenly Father and in every area of our life. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and wealth and fame, and we desperately need to be transformed into your likeness, be changed into people who, who look like you, 
live in harmony with the people around us like you did. So God, as we sing, um, let that reality sink in. Let our need for you sink in. And let the truth of what you've accomplished to secure us in your family, to perfect us, to make us holy and without blemish, sink into us as well. For this in your name. Amen.